I'm going to open us in prayer, and we will get rocking and rolling. Uh, Father, uh, boy, to think about repentance is to realize how lacking I am. Lord, I thank you that you are good and gracious, kind to your people, and Holy Spirit, that you're ever at work on our hearts and our minds and our lives. Teach us what it is to repent for the sake of Jesus this morning. We ask in his name. Amen. All right, we're going to start out with our memory verse. So just a reminder, um, I'm looking around, no, all y'all have been here. But, oh, except Teresa. Hi, Teresa. Um, well, she like been in another state or something. What's with that? Um, so uh, we've been doing a class on forgiveness and repentance. We actually spent sort of three weeks talking about uh, forgiveness and then we've, this is our second week on repentance. And then next week we're going to wrap stuff up. Uh, but uh, the reason we're treating forgiveness and repentance together is because they are wildly tied to one another. Uh, and so we needed to really consider both to have a good understanding. And the verse we've been using is sort of our catalyst verse is Ephesians 4.32, which says, Be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And that's been our memory verse, so let's all say that together. Try and close your eyes if you can. Uh, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Ephesians 4.32. So today, you know, last week, or was it last week? It was two weeks ago. This class is so split up. Uh, Two weeks ago, we talked, we were really just trying to get a theological understanding, just have a concept, a big picture concept of what is repentance. Uh, And so what I want to do today is air that out. And just as I had six steps of forgiveness, so I manufactured six steps of uh, repentance because everyone likes steps. Uh, Normally it's 12 steps, but I'm lame. I can only come up with six. So, obviously none of you have ever been alcoholics because no one got that joke. So, um, all right. So, repentance. First of all, let's uh, let's go back to two weeks ago. What is repentance? Obviously my teaching was fantastic. To change your mind. Any Anything else that we remember about repentance? To change behavior. To turn toward or turn around. Right? So turning around, changing your mind. I've already said forgiveness and repentance go together. Uh, the, the verse that everyone and their dog that's written on this has used as a proof text is Luke 17, verse 3, which we're going to look at a little bit today. Uh, but all throughout, there is the, the Bible, especially the New Testament, but the Old Testament too, there's constantly a connection between forgiveness and repentance. And I, I want to point out, sometimes it's because of your forgiveness you ought to repent, and sometimes it's if you repent you'll be forgiven. Both things show up in the text. And we have to take that seriously because that 
makes our sort of nice, neat theology not so neat some of the time. Uh, now, does anyone remember what repentance is not? Repentance is not penance. You are not, repentance is not just going and paying the price you owe. Now, that's not to say there's not restitution, but restitution and penance are not the same thing. You cannot earn forgiveness. My sin is just too terrible for me to ever do anything to merit God's favor. Right? So repentance is not penitence. It's not penance. It's not punishing yourself or paying back in order for everything to be okay, although there may be a paying back as a part of the repentance process. Uh, this is kind of, you know, this is the difference between a religious person and a Christian, right? Uh, r- religious people do lots of very good-looking things because they think it makes God okay with them. Christians do good things out of a heart full of joy for forgiveness for all the bad things they've done. And that really is the difference between a religious person who's going to hell and a Christian. Uh, So, uh, in order to get into uh, these steps of repentance, so any, any, sorry, before we get into that, any questions or follow-ups from just big definitions of repentance? Yes, there is. If you look it up in a dictionary, penitence is part of repentance because it's actually sorrow over sin. But uh, I typed this wrong, and so I was trying to hope no one spotted my dictionary error. (laughs) So yes, there is a difference between penitence and penance. Penitence is part of repentance. Penance is not part of repentance. So, good catch. All right, seeing no other questions, uh, my six steps I actually drew from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Uh, And since I drew this straight from the Catechism, I've not terribly uh, proof-texted this because we received the entire Catechism as a faithful teaching of what the Bible says, so I don't have to do that. so what I, uh, let's all answer this together. What is repentance unto life? Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does, with grief and hatred of his sin, turn from it unto God with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. All right, so out of that, I just walked right through it, and I saw six steps there, all of which, by the way, conveniently matched up with the material in this fun little book from the Puritans, uh, Thomas Watson's The Doctrine of Repentance. Uh, It's worth the read. Uh, it, It definitely, it's very contextualized as far as he's dealing with England, uh, in you know the 1600s, uh, and so and he uses you know imagery that 
we go and Latin that you go, what? Stop that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that's the nature of reading old writers, which is healthy for all of us. So says C.S. Lewis. So uh, according to uh, the Shorter Catechism, six steps of repentance are first to recognize our sin as evil. Uh, and I, I do want to, there's sort of both, there's a generic and a specific sense, right? So to become a Christian is to repent. It is to turn to Jesus Christ alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel. That is just repentance in general. And so it is to go, I am evil and born in sin. I do not deserve to go to heaven. I do not deserve to have God as my father. I deserve to be orphaned, left alone, damned forever. And if that sounds harsh, that's how bad our sin is. We've talked before about how we don't take sin seriously enough. So we have to generally recognize our sin as evil. But when it comes to repenting of a specific sin, uh, and we're going to look at the confession here in a minute, where we talk about the specificity of repentance, meaning naming a sin and repenting of it, uh, you've got to say, this sin I did is evil. Right? So there are certain things... There are certain things you say you're sorry for that are not sin, okay? This morning, I got in the car and flipped over a, a plate of muffins that we had sat there to eat on our way here, and it, one of the muffins went in Caitlin's tea. I, I said I'm sorry. Yeah, and her skirt and her makeup bag, and it was, it was awful. But I did not say I apologize, and I did not say, uh, you know, I confess my sin. I said I'm sorry. It was an accident. That was not sinfulness, that's clumsiness. Uh, and they are not the same thing. Uh, but if, if I were to have, you know, if I had gotten in the car and went, I'm mad about this, whack! Right, that would have been evil. Right, that would be acting out of sinful anger. Sinful actions coming out of sinful anger. And then I would have needed to have said, I did that because I was mad, and that's not okay, that's evil. That is wrong, right? So we need to name our sins specifically. And then, at least as we walk through the catechism, and I'm just going to tell you, these steps are not necessarily in order in which they happen. It would be lovely and wrapped up in a nice bow if they did, but it's just not how it goes down in life, because life is complicated. Um, so, these are six steps, but not necessarily in this exact order all the time. So, uh, you recognize sin as evil, and then you see Christ's work on the cross for you, and you believe it is for you. So, this is one of the things I've said time and time again. Christ, only Christians can forgive Christianly. There is a level of healing that our other-than-Christian friends can have through a type of forgiveness, but they are not enabled to forgive as Christians forgive because they don't know true forgiveness at the deepest level yet. And so, uh, similarly, uh, while there can be real change and even growth 
uh, in our non-Christian friends, and we can even applaud that at a certain level, and should, because it opens up great evangelistic windows. Uh, Nonetheless, non-Christians cannot repent in the same sense that Christians do, because they are not turning towards Jesus, and they are not changing for Jesus. This is, to go back to the, you know, the Pharisee, uh, non-Pharisee, the religious versus Christian dichotomy, the religious person and the Christian often do the same thing, but one of them saved and one of them's not, even though they both name God and do the same stuff, because one of them is doing it out of an apprehension of the mercy they've received for their sins, and the other one is doing it because they think that what they're doing makes them better than other people. And that is a profound heart difference that God sees. So we see Christ's work for us on the cross, and we believe it is for us. And that should then lead us to hate sin. In fact, if anything, one of the most profound things in this Doctrine of Repentance book is his arguments for all the reasons sin is heinous. If you want to sort of realize that you're not dedicated enough to Jesus and your only hope for salvation is grace alone, read this, because you realize you don't take sin seriously enough and the ways I sin are so much worse than I give myself credit for. I need Jesus real bad. Um, And so do you, my friends. Uh, So yeah, if nothing else, that'll make you cry because you start to hate sin a little bit more, I hope. But you, you gotta hate your sin. And again, you gotta hate it specifically. This thing I did was wrong, and I hate that I did that. I hate that it was wrong. And then you turn from said sin. But we're gonna go back over all this stuff, right? So I'm sort of going through it once, fairly quick, and then we're gonna see all these steps come back up as we explore repentance. Uh, throughout our class today. So you turn from the sin. You say, I see this sin. I hate this sin. I see myself doing this sin. I'm I'm, going to turn away from this. What am I going to turn to? Okay, we turn to Jesus. Yes. But if we're going to repent of sin specifically, we have to turn to some specific behavior. Full endeavor after an intention of Perfect obedience, right? So we plan for obedience. we got to open up the Bible or go talk to wise people and figure out what obedience looks like. If this sin I'm committing is a thing I ought not be doing, or if this thing I'm not doing, and remember, sin of omission is still sin, so if you don't do a thing that you ought to be doing, you're still culpable for sin in God's eyes. What is the thing I should actually be doing? Right? So if I'm doing this sinful thing, or I'm not doing a thing I ought to be doing, what is it I ought to be doing? So we have to figure that out and plan to follow through in obedience for, uh, to do that. And then, everyone's favorite step, you actually have to go do it. Which is the easiest. It's the easiest, therefore the hardest. Meaning, once you know what you ought to do, well, you know what you ought to do, but wouldn't you know it, we all know what we ought to do, and maybe I'm the only one, but I often know what I ought to do and don't. And that is 
Not good. That is sin. Or another way you could look at it, and by the way, I stole this straight out of this book uh, by uh, Paul Tripp and Tim Lane. Uh, If you don't know who they are, uh, they're both uh, PCA pastors and practicing counselors uh, up in Philadelphia. Uh, In fact, I think Paul Tripp's still an assistant at 10th Prez after all these years. But how people change. So this is sort of their model, uh, which I realize you can't see very well. So go buy the book. Then you can see it just fine. Because everyone needs to read this book, okay? It's, it, it's gold. I, I mean, it's printed by an amateur, apparently. But the actual content is solid gold. Um, but, you know, the idea is, okay, heat. Something comes up that makes you sin. Ah, I see this sin in my life, right? I, I see the fruit coming, right? Bad fruit. How did I react? What are the consequences to how I reacted? So suddenly my sin is visible. It can be seen. But you know what? Underneath all of our sin, there is always deeper sin. Call it idolatry. Call it sins of the heart. Call it whatever you want. I, there's always a sin underneath the sin. And so you go from this bad fruit down to the bad root. We all believe false things. We all, even if we can say the right answers, uh, you know, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Justification is an act of God's great, right? Great. Glad you can say all that business. You don't believe it at some level or you'd quit sinning and so would I, Right? So we have to figure out, what is it I do believe? What is it I want in the depths of my heart that is actually creating a life that produces this bad fruit in reaction to these situations? Uh, Someone said to me this week, and it's probably going to stick with me for a little while because I'm thinking about church planting, but it works in life too. The results you're getting are the perfect results for the system you've created. It works in organizations And it works in your life. The results you're getting are the perfect results for the system you've created. So, what is it in my life that needs to change? Not just my life, not what do I need to do differently. What deep desire of my heart is sinful? And I need to confess my very desires to God and ask Him to change them. And, and what is it that I need to grow in seeing as evil? And what is it I need to grow in loving? And of course, that first of all leads us to the cross. Our Redeemer, who forgives us all these sins. Because he who knew no sin became sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We see Jesus on the cross. We see his resurrection. We see his example And we hear his word, and we begin to grow nearer to God. And so we begin to love what he loves. We begin to understand his instructions, and that begins to change our heart by the power of the Holy Spirit above all else. But, you know, if people want to know what to do, once you get past pray for the Holy Spirit, you've got to actually tell people what to go do, right? Like, we have to... We, we always have to emphasize depend on the Holy Spirit because if we don't, it's less than Christian. At the same time, if we stop at, well, just depend on the Holy Spirit, 
it's still less than Christian. Like, Christians do stuff. (laughs) And if anyone's ever told you anything else, they're liars. So there. Christians do stuff. Um, So, we begin to see what God's word says. We begin to see God and his character for who he is. We begin to love what he loves. When we begin to then, out of that, respond differently. Respond knowing how we've been forgiven. Respond knowing how we're loved. Respond just, maybe your heart isn't there, but you know what? You say, uh, you know, C.S. Lewis used to talk about, uh, I think it's in Mere Christianity, he talks about sometimes when I don't love someone, I will act loving toward them anyway, and I find that eventually I actually do wind up loving them. All right, so, uh, or or I I love... uh, Tim Keller, I forget what sermon this was in, but it's stuck with me forever since I first heard it. Uh, He says, you know, we don't always do right things for the right reasons, but it's better to start going ahead and doing right things and let the right reasons catch up. (laughs) And you know what? I think that's probably right. Uh, You can't stay there, right? I've already emphasized religious people who do right things are nonetheless damned, but... If you know the right thing to do and you can pull it off for the wrong reasons, go ahead and start doing the right things and let the reasons catch up because you should still be confessing the wrong things that are in your heart. Right? That's really the, that's what leaves someone as a Pharisee. They, get, they start doing the right things for all the wrong reasons and they don't deal with this root. Right? That's, that's the real difference. And so you begin to respond to new things and so situations happen and oh, I start to do some different fruit because there's starting to be some different root because I've seen my sin. I've turned to Jesus, to God. I've learned of his ways. I've seen God's character and I'm beginning at least a little bit to begin to walk in his ways. All right, so I'm going to pause. So I sort of gave you six steps and I very generically walked through those steps using uh, stealing uh, the, the how, do you, how do people change model that none of you can see. Uh, but you're all going to go buy the book, and then you'll know it all. Um, but any, any questions or thoughts before we... By the way, we're basically going to repeat this in multiple ways, right? Because different people take it in different ways. So if you're still not there yet, don't worry, we're not done yet. But questions or thoughts at this point? Man, did someone preach on that at Presbytery or something? <laughs> That's what Mike preached on at Presbytery. We live by faith and not by sight. <laughs> and then I stole it for uh, communion. <laughs> All I Listen, I've never had a, an original thought in my life. I just steal other people's stuff and make it look good. <laughs> uh, All right. So let's, uh, let's add a little bit of detail by looking at some things going on in the Westminster Confession. I'm not doing all of chapter 15, which is on repentance. I just pulled out a couple of sections that let me make a point I want to make, because uh, I'm teaching the class and I can do that. Um, so, uh, section 3 of on repentance in the Westminster Confession says, Although repentance is not to be rested in, as any satisfaction for sin or any cause of the pardon thereof. All right, so did you catch that? 
Repentance, you do not rest in repentance. You are not saved because of repentance. You're saved because of Jesus. And yet, if you do not repent, you are not saved. Alright, so there's some maybe more logical than temporal, meaning when we think it through as, you know, logical Western people, we go, oh, well, this has to lead to this, has to lead to this. But that doesn't necessarily have everything to do with how it works out in how we experience time. Um, So uh, repentance is not to be rested in because it is not any satisfaction for sin. Our repentance does not pay back what we owe. Our repentance does not earn us forgiveness because it is not any cause of the pardon thereof. Because the pardon of our sin is the act of God's free grace in Christ. Yet, repentance is of such necessity to all sinners that none may expect pardon without it. Right? So this is Luke 17.3. Jesus says, he's teaching on forgiveness, and he says, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, Forgive him, right? He actually uses an if clause there. If he repents, forgive him. Well, wait a minute. So you're saying we don't forgive if they don't repent? I'm saying you don't reconcile if they don't repent. But you obviously, right, we don't build any theology off of a single verse. If you have a bit of theology that you've only got one verse for, doubt your theology. So, he does use this conditional, if he repents, forgive him. But we also know that Jesus declares forgiveness prior to repentance in several cases. Or at least, repentance is not demonstrable. Think about the thief on the cross. He had no time to go do anything that looked like repentance other than say, Lord, uh, please receive me into your kingdom. And, I mean, I guess we could argue that's a sort of repentance, and it is, but there was still this disposition. And, of course, we know from our theology, when were you, uh, when were you saved? Before the foundation of the world. Now, you can't have repented before the foundation of the world. You didn't exist. Okay, so, again, there, there's... As Doctor Who would say, it's wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey, all right? Uh, Don't get too caught up on all the temporal stuff, but we're people, okay? We do live in the fourth dimension. For those of you who are not aware of physics, we live in at least four dimensions, right? Time itself actually functions like a physical space. Never mind. Um, uh, All right. Uh, So, uh, right, we have to live in the fourth dimension. We have to deal with time, And so for us, we can be experientially ready to forgive someone prior to their repentance. So what the if-then for us means, as far as application goes, is if they repent, then you can seek reconciliation. Okay, That's that's how we're going to frame this, because that's sort of the larger theology built in. Uh, And just to quote something else, uh, Colossians 1, verses 21 through 23... You, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, 
uh, Paul is talking to the church at Colossae, and y'all were doing evil deeds. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Right, And so th- this is the great verse that proves not once saved, always saved. I just said that it does not prove that. Let me put that in grammar that makes sense. So this is denying once saved, always saved. There's a, there's a collective gasp. Is he a heretic now? Rather, a far more useful phrase is, all who are truly saved will be saved, which is demonstrated by continuation in the faith. Right? So all who are truly saved will be saved, which is demonstrated by continuation in the faith. Does everyone see the distinction I made? And why I changed the phrase. Okay. So I'm not a heretic. I love to make y'all nervous. Uh, You know, some of you were nervous the day I showed up at this church. And I just enjoy feeding off of that. Um, Alright, so. Also from Westminster Confession, Chapter 15. The next section. As there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation. So there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. So there are degrees of sin. Some sins are worse than others. And there's a whole conversation to be had about that. But as far as the conversation, can anyone sin so badly that they'll never be forgiven? Listen, the sin against the Holy Spirit is this separate conversation. Okay, So put that in a little box over to the side and don't worry about that right now. Can anyone sin so big they'll, they cannot be forgiven if they repent? No. I don't care how big it is. I don't care how many people they've slept with, how many people they've murdered. Frankly, if Jeffrey Dahmer was truly repentant, and sources say he was, then the dude that ate people will be in heaven. Is that gross? Yeah. But you know who won't be in heaven? Bunches of other people that we think of as really good who did not believe in Jesus. So like, you know, I, I, I don't know. I'm trying to think of someone I can name that won't make someone mad when I say they're not saved. But name that person and know that Jeffrey Dahmer may be in heaven and they won't. All right, so uh, even our smallest sin deserves damnation. But there is no sin anyone can commit that makes it uh, where they cannot be saved if they truly repent and believe in Jesus. Now, uh, I, I will say when it comes to small sins, John Owen in his trilogy on sin and temptation talks about the, the road to hell being lined with small overlooked sins. Right? So we need to take small sins very seriously. Now, again, if you believe in Jesus, your sins are forgiven, okay? But, We need to take small sins very, very seriously because they have the potential to mess up our lives. And then the next section says, men ought not to to content themselves with a general repentance, 
but it is to every man's duty to endeavor to repent of his particular sins particularly. General confessions are not enough. Confessing on Sunday during the service is not enough. If you have specific sins you've committed and you do not confess them to God and the person you sinned against specifically, I don't know that you're really repentant. If you never repent specifically, are you even following Jesus at all? I'm not so sure you are. Right? So we've got to name our sins, not just a generic, well, I know I'm a sinner. Yeah, but John, how are you a sinner? Don't answer that. Right? Uh, Fred, how are you a sinner? Right? Uh, what sins have you committed, Bob? Right? We, we've got to name them specifically, at least to God, and in most cases, I would argue, most, I'm leaving myself some wiggle room, in most cases, we need to confess to the person or people we sinned against specifically. And until we've done that, I just don't know that you're truly repentant. And then Westminster Confession uh, 15.6, as every man is bound to make private confession of his sins to God, so basically he's going to, the confession says what I just said, praying for the pardon thereof, upon which and the forsaking of them he shall find mercy, so he that scandalizes his brother or the church of Christ ought to be willing by a private or public confession and sorrow for his sin to declare his repentance to those that are, uh, that are offended, who are thereupon to be reconciled to him and in love to receive him. So that, that's saying what I just said. You've got to actually go to the person you sinned against and specific or people and specifically confess your sins. And right, so if you sinned against a single person, it's fine to keep it private. If you sinned against the whole church in some way, you need to get up in front of the church and confess to the whole church. It, it is holy humiliation. And it is a necessary part of repentance. Holy humiliation is a necessary part of repentance. Now, there's sort of this side note here. This Okay, I see this a lot on social media, but I see it in other places too. Some people want to say, well, if a person you know, sins publicly or says something wrong publicly is therefore my duty and privilege to go correct them publicly. And that is so much baloney that I want to just stamp my foot down on that. B.S. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, if a, if a brother sins, you, go, you start going to him privately. He makes no qualifications about, well, if he sinned publicly, then you can just go ahead and shame him publicly. Now, it needs to be on a trajectory to them confessing publicly, but it is not your job to go confess someone else's sins publicly. Correction starts in private. And having said that, I can now jump on the next person that feels privileged to jump on someone publicly uh, on, on Facebook because they said something wrong instead of starting a private conversation or who feels it's their duty to go confess their sins for them. 
a confrontation needs to start private. Now, if you look at Matthew 18, then if they do not listen, you can bring a brother with you in order to uh, make sure you're confronting them correctly. By the way, and we'll talk about this uh, in two weeks. Um, that the, uh, Matthew 18, verse 16, where it says, take a brother with you when you go confront them the next time. It's not a witness of them sinning. It's a witness to make sure you're not being a jerk in how you confront them. So a lot of people do that wrong, right? They go and try and confront them privately and their brother doesn't listen. So they go find three other people that'll come along and also jump on the person. That way, you know, the crowd can beat them into submission. But that's not what that verse is about. Matthew 18, verse 16 is not about taking a bunch of other people to also jump on this person you saw sin. It's about taking another witness to make sure you're not being a jerk in the way you confront them. Chew on that. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. All right, so, and only then, if they will not listen, you go to the church. Again, it's not your job to publicly go out and confront them. You take it to the church, and then the church makes decisions about how to deal with that, right? So, and, and there may be nothing you can do, in which case, you let it be. You might teach about it or something. Yeah. Right. Right. Absolutely. Amen. Yeah, it's keeping you accountable. It's not about mob justice. Um, All right, so, uh, yeah, again, this is not about the... Uh, Well, all right, we can move on from there. So, let's give some marks of repentance from DASA. Uh, That is uh, the uh, Domestic Abuse and Sexual Abuse Study Report that our denomination did uh, just this last General Assembly. They give, oh, excuse me, some marks of repentance. Well, first of all, any other questions or thoughts? Alan, that was solid gold. Any other questions or thoughts about the stuff I just said? All that stuff from the Westminster Confession about some details about repentance? Right. All things do not need to be confrontational. Right. Uh, Proverbs 19, it is the glory of a man to overlook sins, uh, which is sort of paraphrased in the New Testament as love in Peter, the letters of Peter, uh, love uh, covers a multitude of sins. Um, If there's small sins that are not necessarily a pattern of sin, sometimes you can just let it go. Now, obviously, if there's a pattern that's destroying someone's life, and it's growing, you need to go confront that. But at the end of the day, the holiest person is still a sinner, and some days people just have a bad day. And 
you can just let it go if it's small and relatively inconsequential and not a pattern. Does that make sense? So, so much of this is about like putting, so much of this is about me. All right, so I'm thinking about my own prep. I've got all these things I've heard made very black and white statements with no nuance. And so I'm trying to say all the black and white statements that are true and then add all the wisdom that people sometimes forget to tack on to it. So that's sort of how this is coming out, just so you know. Um, I'm taking things that I've heard people say that are true, but then they don't add like, but there's all these other circumstantial things that make it a little messy. Um, People love black and white, and that's not good for any of us because life is gray. Um, All right, so six marks of repentance. Number one, ownership of sin without minimization. I sinned, this was bad, period, stop. Not, I sinned, but you know, the minute someone says, but, they're not truly repentant. Well, I know I did this, but no, you're not repentant. Nope. Two, willingness to fully accept the consequences of sin. Right? Uh, meaning, you do not start with, well, I'm really repentant, so will you not make me face all these consequences? That's not repentance. That's worldly sorrow. That's, I wish I hadn't got caught. It's not repentance. Patient endurance. But remember, this is from a, a, um, a, an abuse and sexual abuse report, so... I tried to alter this a little bit to be apply to other stuff because the principle applies. But uh, patient endurance with the victim's healing. A person who says, well, I confessed, so why don't you forgive me and reconcile to me already? That person is not repentant. That person is angry. That person doesn't like their consequences. But that person is not repentant. Right? So he's saying, you just, I confessed, you need to forgive faster. Get out of here. I don't actually respond this way in pastoral situations. Those of you who have done counseling with me know that, but I got a crowd. What can I say? Um, You're captive. Uh, All right. Godly repentance recognizes the difference between being forgiven, being trusted, and being restored. Remember, we said forgiveness and reconciliation are... Uh, you know, intensely related, but not identical. Forgiveness is not restoration and reconciliation. The goal of forgiveness is to lead to reconciliation and restoration, but in this life, in this life, reconciliation and restoration are not always possible. So reconciliation and restoration are always the goal of godly forgiveness, But in this life, it is not always possible. Uh, The repentant person, sorry, this is still dealing with number four. Uh, The repentant person will not expect to be rewarded with a victim's forgiveness, trust, or reconciliation for merely doing what God commands. It's Jesus uh, talking about, you know, the guy that comes and just did what he was supposed to do, 
isn't going to get rewarded. He just did what he was supposed to do. That's not worthy of reward. Godly behavior is expected and not necessarily rewarded. Uh, five, commitment, right? Repentance is commitment to stop the abuse. Read sin for our context. And recognize the damage it has caused for the person they sinned against. Right? So I've already said a version of that uh, when I was talking about the steps of uh, for, of repentance, right? It's that specificity. So a full confession of sin, including specificity regarding the sin, along with accountability, is required for there to be true repentance. And where abuse is concerned, as the report says, a third party is normally recommended for accountability purposes, right? So when we're talking about severe, scandalous uh, body and soul harming abuse in particular, you can sort of skip the private uh, 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 confrontation part because that's not safe, right? Like if you, if you are physically less strong and you go confront someone who abused you, you know what they're going to do? They're going to abuse you again, right? Wisdom dictates how we handle things. Yeah. Yeah, so, so the, the, uh, the um, what's the word? I used it earlier. I have words sometimes. The, uh, where I would make the delineation is actually between consequence and reward. You got a good consequence. Consequences are not always bad. Consequences are merely, in fact, we saw that in the, I know you couldn't see it, but in our little uh, graph that I had with the tree, over here, it called the fruit that comes from good stuff. It still called it consequences. So, uh, so I, w- I, would, I, would, I would delineate between consequence and reward. Reward is given as payment uh, for going above and beyond. It's a commendation for going beyond all that is good and right. right? That's, uh, it, whereas consequence is just, well, of course this is how things work out because that's how creation is made to work yes I wish I had a way to make it all pop up at once yes. 
So, I would not fully make that. I do think there's a difference between how believers interact and a believer and an unbeliever interact. But I think that sort of at a very practical on-the-ground level, a Christian can, you know, using wisdom to discern where they're at personally, can actually uh, confront and do things in a semi-Christian way, or in a, you know, in a Christian way, that actually becomes a sort of witness. So I actually, I I teach in a different lecture I used to give on how Matthew 18, even though the context is about between believers and the church, nonetheless has some general principles that work very well in the business world and create a sort of opportunity for witness. Uh, So I I would say, yes, all this is in the context of uh, believers, uh, but I think at a very practical level, uh, depending on a bunch of wisdom issues, it often doesn't look very different. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, particularly uh, for the uh, for, for the it, it's about the elders of the church. I mean, that's very clear if you just keep on reading verses 19 and 20 of Matthew 18. Uh, all that stuff about where two or three believers are gathered together, so there am I. That that's not about prayer. Everyone always quotes it and says, "See, get three people together and pray." That's I mean, that's great. I'm not against three people getting together and praying. But that Bible verse has nothing to do with that whatsoever. It's about the, the elders of the church being in charge of those decisions in the discipline process. <laughs> uh, no, there was only five, but I put six because typos. Um, but, you know, I forget what my typos are until I get there. <laughs> This is the problem of like putting these things together several days before you teach them is you don't entirely remember what you put down to teach. <laughs> this is why sermons are better. I'd right? have a manuscript. <laughs> um, all right, so examples of repentance. Uh, we're, we do not have the time to do what I wanted to do, and I promised Mike I'd wrap this up after one more class. So uh, everyone go home and read Psalm 51 and uh, Psalm 32 and these others. But uh, let me just make a couple. So without reading them, I'm going to make some comments, okay? Because I've got eight minutes to wrap this up, and one of those needs to be spent praying. So if you go read Psalm 51, you're going to see, remember the the titles, you know, a, a, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went into him after he went into Bathsheba. That's part of the scripture. That is not... Now, now, the italics part, right, that is not part of the scripture. Some, probably Jack Collins put that on there. Um, 
But the, the actual, like, all caps part that's a title, that's part of the scripture. It's part of the Bible. Uh, it, it is part of God's word. And so that title actually tells you that Psalm 51 has a very specific context. Uh, it is when, uh, and then, you know, you see a very, you see a confession of sin. So in the context, you know it's a specific confession. Um, He's asking for the Holy Spirit's help. Uh, a, a note on verse 4. Uh, for uh, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. A lot of people take that verse and build a theology that is true that all sin is against God. But that's not what that verse is about. So kind of like the Matthew 18 verse. True theology, wrong verse to build that theology. What, that, what verse 4 is about, and by the way, I got this from Pastor Mike, okay, so blame him. Um, that verse actually isn't about, oh, my sin's only against you, God. It's about the fact that David is king in a theocracy, and therefore he has no Supreme Court or Senate to come and correct him. Because he is king in a theocracy, the only one that truly knows all, right? even Nathan coming and confronting him, was an act of God, because Nathan was a prophet. The only one that actually had absolute power to know and come and get David was God, was Yahweh. So that's what verse 4 is about. And so um, it has to do with him being king, because of course he'd sinned against Bathsheba. He probably raped her. I, I would argue he raped her. Um, I know some people would argue the other way. I'm showing my cards. I think he raped her. Um, all right. He acknowledges what God actually desires, right? So this is part of that repentance. So we got acknowledging how evil my sin is, confessing it specifically, now looking at God's character. He's merciful. His steadfast love endures forever. This is what you want from me, O God. Holy Spirit, help me walk in this way. All six steps right there in Psalm 51 asking forgiveness, and yes, asking God not to bring down the consequences he ought, that he ought to receive, okay? It is okay to ask for mercy, but you still, he's still accepting of the consequences. And we know that because in 2 Samuel 12, when, God, when Yahweh says, you know what? I'm going to kill your son, the son of this. David, after the death, stands up and walks away and says, God, you're good. He accepts the consequences. He asked for mercy, and in many ways he did receive mercy. But when God says, this is the consequence, and I'm going to bring this down, he says, okay, your will be done, not mine, Lord. Um. More stuff from Psalm 51. He's acknowledging and committing to how he ought to actually behave. Uh, he accepts the consequences. I've already talked about that. Um, all right, so I'm going to skip some slides here because I actually have some slides I really, really want to get to. So let me skip down here. So we're not going to look at any of that other stuff. Um, just some random comments without the time to actually get it all together. There's this whole thing, by the way, you can go get the domestic abuse and sexual abuse report. Please go get it. These questions uh, are absolutely wonderful. 
uh, they're an exposition of that, you know, the verse, uh, 2 Corinthians uh, 7, verse 10, uh, for there is, a, uh, there is godly sorrow that leads to salvation uh, with repentance and godly sorrow that leads to damnation. Uh, this is a pastor's exegesis of this and a bunch of questions to help you judge whether or not repentance is real. And so I want to commend that to you uh, because it's important. I also, I want to say restitution is a thing, okay? It's in the Old Testament, Right, Exodus 22, uh, verses 1 through 14, and Leviticus, Leviticus 6, both talk about restitution. Uh, and then we see it also exampled in uh, Luke 19. Now, Zacchaeus is not doing it to get forgiven. He is responding to the forgiveness he has received. It's not a bargain. Uh, but anyone who ever says restitution is not biblical needs to go read the Bible. Uh, because it is, right? Making amends is a biblical idea. Not because it earns forgiveness, but because it's with doing what we can within our power to make right what we made wrong. And if we truly hate that we made something wrong, we'll be motivated to do what we can to make it right. That's just common sense. Um, all right. If you are going to make a confession, oh man, I should manuscript this stuff because then I know how much time I have. Seven A's of confession. Address everyone involved, all those whom you affected. Avoid if, but, and maybe. Do not try and excuse your wrongs. Admit specifically both attitudes and actions. Acknowledge the hurt. Express sorrow for hurting someone. Accept the consequences. Alter your behavior and ask for forgiveness. That's straight out of Ken Sandy, by the way. Uh, But uh, this I think I got from uh, John Piper. But, you know, it's express sorrow. Say, I'm sorry. Own your guilt. Say, I was wrong. And name it specifically, because I did X. And name the impact. And that hurt you. That took this from you. Don't use any ifs. I'm so sorry if. Right? I'm sorry if I hurt you. I'm sorry if I made you feel bad is not an apology. Don't blame shift. Don't say, I know I did this, but you. That's not an apology. It's not repentance. Uh, And then ultimately make amends. Ask what you can do. If you haven't apologized like this, You shouldn't expect reconciliation. Again, there's wisdom things. I think I told a story two weeks ago about, you know, some dads who haven't uh, matured yet go, it's okay, son. And you just go, well, that's the best he can do because he hasn't matured enough. And so that's where love and wisdom can overlook a multitude of sins. All right. Someone name something we learned today and then I'll pray us out. (laughs) Nothing? You like ifs? Oh, me too. God help us both. Yeah, me too. God help us both. All right, uh, let's let's pray. Uh, Father, please, by your Holy Spirit, use 
this conversation today to actually lead us towards more and more repentance, to hate our sin, to turn more and more towards Jesus, to walk in holiness because of our forgiveness through the cross, and do that through our worship as well. Uh, As we get ready to go in here and hear from your words, sing your praises, uh, be drawn into your very heavenly throne room by your Holy Spirit, would you draw us more and more to know your love and to repent accordingly with joy. Uh, We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.